We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why when it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. Today's episode of the Bronx Pinstripe Show is brought to you by the Bronx Brewery and their Bronx Banner Ale. It is a golden, easy ale that's perfect for summer and baseball games. It is now available at Yankee Stadium in over six sections, and you can find it at Bronx Bars and around Yankee Stadium. Also check them out at their South Bronx-based tasting room. All right, let's get into the show. We are breaking down all aspects of Yankee baseball. This is the Bronx Pinstripe Show with your hosts, Andrew Rotondi and Scott Reinen. Let's go. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Bronx Pinstripe Show, episode 164. Scott, the Yankees had a day off on Monday. They go to Toronto and once again forgot how to play baseball. Yeah, we're now calling this the Rob Refsnyder curse. Rob Refsnyder has come back, and whether he was very good in the field, it doesn't matter. Whether he's very good at the plate, it doesn't matter. He's pretty much just there to curse the New York Yankees, and that's what happened. All hail Rob Refsnyder, giving it back to the Yankees in, in the only way he knows how. You get a little choked up seeing him in a Blue Jays hat? It just doesn't look right, you know? It just doesn't look right. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it, just, it just takes me back to the time where he should have been the starting second baseman, and, you know, those were, those were painful memories because I felt like he was just getting the shaft the entire time, and now, look, he's, he's over in... He's jumped countries. We, we've, it's, he's been shipped to Toronto, for God's sakes. So it's just sad, unfortunately, but life goes on. He's no longer here, so I'm not going to cry over spilt milk any longer. I know you weren't able to catch the pregame yesterday, but Meredith was talking to him 
And uh, she asked him, were you surprised when the Yankees released you? And he said, no, I, I was not at all. I wasn't playing a lot recently. I wasn't playing well. Basically everything that you and I had said on this podcast where Ref Snyder saw the writing on the wall and this is a better situation for him. Obviously, he's starting for a Major League Baseball team. So we don't need to get down the whole Ref Snyder rabbit hole again, but good for good for Ref Snyder. Just please go 0-4 every time the Yankees <laughs> play you. Well, yeah, and also, I mean, not that it was a surprise. He's like, what the hell is taking so long? Get me out of here so I can actually play baseball, please. He was like Costanza trying to get fired, going yeah, out exactly. there in, in body suits and, and destroying the World Series trophies. Got to do it. I mean, you got to get the hell out of there. You got to play baseball as a baseball player. Uh, so I know we were kind of looking at the, the players' uniforms for that August weekend. The, it's the players' weekend where they have all nicknames on the jerseys. It looks like they're playing in spring training uniforms, and we were laughing at some of the nicknames. And I think your immediate reaction was, this was stupid. It is stupid. It's all, <laughs> The whole thing is ridiculous. I mean, it's just another ploy for the... Look, they're going to say that this is an opportunity for the players to have fun and for Major League Baseball to loosen up and do all those things. And yeah, that's that's all well and good. And I feel like there's other opportunities to do that, but it's it's so gimmicky and dumb. And the fact that the Yankees are going to play a home game in navy blue uniforms that say with white Yankees across the chest, zero pinstripes, a white hat, and white sleeves with dumb nicknames on the back, and some of them aren't even their real nicknames. It's just stupid. It doesn't make any damn sense. Are you really upset over this? I'm just, I'm just dumb. I'm just, it's, I'm not upset about it. I'm not really going to spend much time over like, you know, getting upset about it. It's just, it's just dumb. It's like one of those, it's just one of those things that it feels like, you know, some kid threw out some really dumb idea and, and it, some intern like blurted out an idea and actually people took him seriously and now it's happening. Like, well, this it's, is, it's, you wonder how it got as far as it did. It's the MLB's answer to the NFL color rush. It's an opportunity for them to sell more jerseys. Cha-ching! And you know there's going to be so many fair-weather Yankee fans who just jumped on board this season who are going to go out and buy all-rise Aaron Judge jerseys. Oh, there's, there's no doubt about it. You're right. It's, I mean, it's very clear what it is. I mean, I get it. It's a money-making thing. So as a financial, if you're looking at the financial side of Major League Baseball and them you know, trying to sell more jerseys and more paraphernalia and all this crap, I get it. It's going to work. It, you know, kids are going to buy this stuff. But like, can we do this, I don't know, in the spring training? It would be way more fitting in spring training. It's like you're looking at a minor league game and they're rolling out there in like camo uniforms or American flag uniforms. It's pretty much on the same level for me. And some of the nicknames are really stupid because they're not even like their regular nickname. Why is Batances D-Dog? I've never once heard anybody call him D-Dog. Why is Pineda even out there why is this why on the marketing graphic why are we even including michael panetta he's never going to wear the uniform ever again in his life but you can go out and buy for 59.99 a big mike panetta jersey and if i see you wearing that i'm gonna slap you yeah i mean this is just an excuse for them to get a name on the look at least they're not rolling out in some pinstripes with a name on their back at least it didn't go that far so at least that's a, a bit of a saving grace if this was actually going to happen they just made them completely horrendous and they just went all the way they're like well, this is going to be dumb let's just make them really bad not there'll be no real names on the back except brett gardner who was like i don't have any time for this shit 
Yeah, Gardner's like, no, I'm the longest tenured Yankee. I can't do this. They're calling me their captain. I'm not putting any dumb nickname on the back. Put Gardner and let's be done with this. And please tell me when the, the, the calendar has moved to the next day because this is stupid. You know Gardner thinks this is dumb too. <laughs> there were a couple funny, like Castro All Starlin, which I think is cocky as hell. I love that nickname for Starlin Castro. Yeah, I really, I don't know. It's never really been embraced. I, don't, I guess a nickname for him. I've always liked the Starling Kid for some reason. It just kind of felt good to me. Starling but already sounds like a nickname. It does, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 try it's hard to it's like Sunny. I mean, you can't really give Sunny a nickname. I looked it up actually when they did that, looking at to see what Sunny Gray's nickname was, and it was um, it was oxymoron. Like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard too. That's well, the know, second dumbest thing. You get why? <laughs> oh, I get it, but you can't use that as a nickname. Maybe we have to explain it for the listeners at home. Okay, sunny and then gray. It's not. It's never gray when it's sunny. It's not sunny when it's gray. Oh, I got oxymoronic. It. Yeah, I see. not to be just confused with moronic. No, well, John uh, Sterling. If John Sterling endorses it, you know, it's it's okay for him to say, but nobody else. Headley going with just head. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's aggressive. Just head. I think this it's, is an uh, opportunity for him to change his number to sixty nine. <laughs> Oh, man, that's terrible. But uh, the freeze up 12, too, who I, I don't know if you guys remember the blog I wrote a couple months back. That number 12 is like the the black hole of numbers for the Yankees. It's it's the bizarro Yankee number is number 12. It's it's a it's an appealing one. Well, maybe not anymore with the new trend of going super high and double digits. I mean, the defensive line doesn't wear 12. So I don't know if 12 is going to be a popular number after Headley leaves. Maybe it's just one of those ones that. It's avoided and people don't touch it until you get someone who's really cocky and it's like, I'm going to be the guy. It's like that restaurant that never does well and just keeps changing out as a restaurant. And mm-hmm. they're like, I'm going to do it this time. It's going to be me. And then in three months, they're out of business. Constantly changing the name and just maybe changing the color of the awning confuse people to go back in there for their crappy food. Yeah. Even they, they could change the type of food. Still going to go out of business. Still a bad location. <laughs> and I like uh, Ellsbury. Final little nickname is Ellsbury Chief, which makes me hate Ellsbury just a little bit less. I knew that the Red Sox called him Chief, um, but uh, I'm surprised. You know, this is surprising that John Sterling never went the Native American route with Ellsbury for home run calls. Maybe he thought that was a little offensive. I don't know why, because he used to call um, Hideki Matsui Godzilla and the Sayonara Kid, and he used to say A-bomb for A-rod. So it was always my favorite when there would be an a an a bomb followed by the Sayonara Kid. Yeah, I mean John Sterling will. I think I think he'll toy with a, a few of these things. I don't, I don't think he's a, I don't think he's a, a, away from offending some people. I think he's at that point. He's like an old man who could just say whatever he wants at this point. I mean he's got tenure, he's got job security until he just can't literally see any longer. Until those glasses get so thick that he cannot still not see a baseball. Although I dispute that they're working today. But um, yeah, you notice the nicknames like, are some of them are, are are bad. I still don't get the rocket with with uh, Adam Moore too. It's talk about oxymoronic because he doesn't throw hard and their his nickname is Rocket. It's just uh, I don't know, man. You just keep looking down the line and they're dumb. Was Sevy on there? I didn't even notice if Severino. yeah, it's just Sevy, Sevy. <laughs> some sometimes they got lazy. So, you, but you've noticed like with Yankees Twitter, they're always constantly tweeting out the lineup in nickname form. So this yeah. is probably some contrived thing since like spring training that they knew they were going to have this weekend, this season. They were pushing the whole uh, nickname and emoji thing hard this season. Well, I'm surprised the Yankees, if they're going with these uniforms that are not their standard uniforms and they can pretty much do anything they want. Why not go with the emoji on the back? Why not just take it to another level That'd and be, put a freaking emoji on the back? I would get, maybe I'd like that better. 
Yep, you'd get even even more nine year olds buying those jerseys. Yeah, uh, and it wouldn't technically be a name, so I think I'd be on board with that. You see, they need us in the marketing meeting so that we can actually talk them out of these bad decisions and put push them into some much better bad decisions and like an emoji on the back. I don't know. It's uh, it'll be interesting to see how it's received. I wonder if the announcers are going to refer to the players only by nicknames that weekend. Yeah, it would be very annoying. And it will be the XFL reincarnated <clears throat> on a baseball field at Yankee Stadium, which is. To me, sacrilegious. So it's it's been a short but bad trip to Toronto so far. A couple of injury stuff. Uh, Sabathia tweaked his knee in the left in the third inning of that game on Tuesday. Went back to New York for for an MRI. I guess according to Girardi, the MRI didn't show anything bad, which is good. But there was actually a quote from Sabathia that was pretty concerning. It was Brendan Cuddy tweeted this out. Uh, Sabathia said that his knee hasn't felt this bad since 2015, which is obviously when he had all of those knee issues, started using the knee brace, um, and it had been fine all of last year, which was a huge surprise. Yeah, and, you know, that's the, I mean, that's his Achilles heel is his knee is, is when is it going to go out? I mean, he's still, he, he put the weight back on, he's back to, you know, Captain Crunch CC. So at some point that, that body, that knee is going to give out. And I think that, that really is the, the one thing that's going to stunt him from pitching the way he can, because it seems like he's figured it out as far as the way, you know, how to pitch now. He's figured that whole thing out. It seems like to me. So when he's healthy, I do have uh, some trust in CC. So when you start seeing some bad starts and he's had multiple bad starts in a row where he's getting taken out early, you know, whether it's disputed or not, whether he wanted to get pulled or not, they haven't been good. They haven't been what, you know, we're expecting from him. So it does make sense that there's some kind of an injury or, or if that knee is starting to swell more and become more of a problem, but that's an issue. Uh, you know, I don't know how many times you can come back from that. By the way, you just stumbled upon a better nickname than Dub for CC, Captain Crunch. See, that would have made a lot more sense. Dub, <laughs> Dub is also lazy. If Sabathia does hit the DL, it's, it's still TBD. Uh, Girardi kind of hinted that Montgomery would be the leading candidate to come back up from AAA and start. Also on the pregame on Tuesday, Girardi uh, said 180 innings is about the limit they want to get to for Montgomery. couple of quick stats. Uh, combined between the minors, which he only made one start, and the majors, he has 120 innings so far. So that's about 60 innings shy of that 180 number. So if CC went on the DL for an extended period of time, the clear best option is just have Montgomery come up, make his seven or eight starts until he gets to that innings limit, and then call it a season for him. Because the reality is, he's not going to start in the playoffs if they make the playoffs unless they have an injury. Yeah, I just I feel like they're 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 taking they're taking it easy right now so that they, at least they have an option with him down the stretch. I I don't I feel like that's the the goal by looking at what the plan is, seeing the timing of the plan right now. I feel like they're trying to get to that point where they're still in it down the stretch and then they can they can still utilize him if they need. You know, I, I don't think it's for the playoffs. Like you said, I think at that point it's almost gonna be moot. I think he's gonna be at that limit. Or even if he's in the playoffs, I mean, is he really gonna pitch? Most likely not. Uh so I feel he like they're, well, at least they're getting him start. down the stretch. He might yeah, pitch. Well, he might be in the bullpen, right? But that would be one inning or even one batter at a time. And that's a new position for him at this point. I mean, he's been a start. He's been in the bullpen before, but he's he's been a starter all year. I don't know if they really want to do something like that, especially when they're 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 really 
you know, they're th- this whole plan is, to, is thinking about his long term, the long term vision for Montgomery, and you know, throwing him into a situation where he's almost at the the innings limit, and then putting him in the bullpen. I just, I don't know. It feels like they're being very safe with him, and they're going to try to be safe with him as much as they can. So, to me, they're they're going to start. Rel- I think we might go back to that that revolving door again uh, with, with starters. Um, you know, with the occasional <laughs> Montgomery coming up. We thought we were away from it <laughs> once we yeah, traded for no, two starting back. pitchers at the trade deadline. Uh, like it, it, we say this jokingly all the time when everyone gets all upset at that. What are they going to do? Are they going to go to a six-man rotation? They can't send Clint Frazier down because uh, when Aaron Hicks comes back up, shit always works its way out. Somebody is always injured. As soon as somebody comes back, someone else bites the dust. Yeah, or when you get to the end of the year, we're seeing now with pitch limits or innings limits, and there's just there's just always something to manipulate how, especially starting rotations. I mean, you you just cannot have enough. And we're looking at, I'm not sure where Chance Adams is right now as far as, you know, where they think, uh, you know, his innings limit is as well. But we've heard that he's coming up against that as, and, and, you know, the bullpen might be more of a clear option for him this year. But, you know, as they go on into the season, if they're trying to buy time, you know, he may be an option where, you know, Montgomery's doing one and Chance Adams is doing another. I don't know. I could just see them mixing and matching to try to stretch those innings uh, for as much as possible. But I just think they're they're still trying to manipulate it. Um, I don't think that they're going to just throw Montgomery back into the fold, though. Seems like they're pretty clear on what they want to do with him. Well, the Gumby rules, which are he's going to start every seven days in the minors, and he's going to actually have reduced start. So he's not even going to go like a full seven innings. He might only go five innings or even four innings in those starts. But but there was a quote from Girardi when asked that said, Montgomery would probably be the leading candidate to take Sabathia's start if Sabathia misses a start. Right. And I think that they'll still try to stick on that path, though. I mean, it really doesn't matter where he starts as long as they are. Oh, you're saying they would do that in the majors, too? Yeah, absolutely. No, I could see them doing it in the majors. Well, that's that's what I'm talking about. I I think they mess up everybody else. No, they could continue to rotate. I mean, they could they could keep playing that call up, call down game, uh, send down game, and and just rotating people in. I, I think they could do that with multiple spots. I mean, they've been they've shown that they'll do it. So who's to say they're not? I, I just here's the the main point why I think they will not go back to Montgomery as CC's spot and keep him in that spot every fifth day is because. The plan still is the plan. I mean, I understand that we're competing for this year and there's an, a legitimate opportunity to, to make it and, and to make a, you know, a legitimate run, but they're, they're also not going to, uh, you know, put the future on, uh, at risk with Montgomery. I still think that they, they see him as a long-term future guy. He's going to be a staple in this rotation and they don't want to screw that up. So I still think they're going to be careful with him. Yeah, I don't equate this to a situation when the Nationals shut down Strasburg in a playoff hunt a couple years ago. No, it's a different situation. I mean, they were a win now team. They should have, they should not have shut him down at that point. They were ready to go, and uh, they they blew an opportunity. I mean, that was, to me, that was one of the most bonehead things to do. And exactly what they were trying to prevent injuries to Strasburg are, is exactly what happened to Strasburg. But he well, was doomed. He was doomed. He's, he's an injury. He, that guy is absolutely injury prone. I mean, the way that he throws, he's he's just you know another pitch away from another injury. So to me, shutting him down was. You know, it doesn't do anything. Like, if we're talking about James Caprellian in 2021, the same way we're talking about Strasburg now, I would not be surprised. 100%. I mean, I, the, the one, one of the things that I have been pulling out ever since they've drafted Caprillion was that, you know, he's got a very similar motion to Mark Pryor. Mark Pryor has a very similar motion with Strasburg. All three of those guys, if you look at their delivery, are in the exact same position, and it's, it's, it's like death on an elbow. 
but it will get you a high draft selection and a couple million dollar signing bonus. Oh, no doubt. You can you can get away with it early on and and you know, get your get your Tommy John out of the way, throw 90 some miles an hour, and if you're nasty early on, you're going to get that signing bonus, you're going to get that contract. It's just you're not going to have a long career. It's just there's too many guys that that are that have had that similar motion that just don't work out and they don't have a long career and it's I mean there's a there's a number of them that have just fallen by the wayside because of it. Not to get too like in the weeds on this whole on like lower level baseball, but how does somebody not look at Strasburg when he's like twelve years old and thrown that way and fix it at that point? At that point, because he's striking kids out, and their parents are like, "Yeah, my boy is dominating little league." The coach is like, "Yeah, my guy is dominating little league." There's high school scouts looking at him. Then the college scouts are coming. Like they don't stop them because they're on a roll. They're just right. they're progressing. A lot of it is is um, complacency with, with the teaching. They just stop the teaching because they see a kid dominating and they just keep going. They'll tweak, but they a lot of times they don't change the, the actual motion. Another bit from Tuesday's game is that Mitchell came in after Sabathia, saved the bullpen, pitched really great, couldn't field his position worth a shit, made two terrible errors. I don't know if you were able to catch those errors, but uh, he pitched great and... Um, He's actually pitched really well in the minors over his last 46 innings, 3.32 ERA, 48 strikeouts, and a really good walk rate. So Mitchell is also an option to start in the major leagues if they need somebody. Yeah, luckily the hospital has some really good Wi-Fi, so I've been able to catch more <laughs> games, which has been which has been awesome. Um, it's it's kind of a, a nice little getaway to watch some baseball. But, um, you know, the thing about Mitchell, I mean, you know, everybody knows my feelings at this point about guys with stuff. I mean, Mitchell's one of those guys. He falls into that category where he's got he's got the stuff. He's he's one of those uh, toolsy guys, and and he can come out when he's on. He's really good. I mean, we think back to what was it, two thousand fifteen, sixteen? He's it was had 2016 a rough Sixteen spring training. That ever since then, he really hasn't gotten back to that form. You're right. Well, fifteen, um, he came up and gets drilled in the head on a line drive. Yeah, so it was 2016 where he won the job coming turf out of spring toe. training, and then he had turf toe. Yeah, yeah, the the Deion Sanders nightmare injury. But you know, I mean, look, he's got the ability to do it. He's shown it in AAA. It's a matter of, uh, unfortunately, we have a lot of guys who have shown it in AAA and just can't translate to the majors. Sitting on the on the right. forty man right now, Caleb Smith, Luis Sessa, right. Brian Mitchell, those guys are all in the same camp. I will say this though about Mitchell is that he has looked better than Smith and Sessa at times. Like, I could see a major league pitcher in Brian Mitchell. I watch Caleb Smith pitch, and I'm like, this guy is not a major league pitcher. He might be down the road, but right now he's a triple-A pitcher. Yeah, and that, and that's the thing. I think um, they a lot of these guys still need the seasoning, but it's frustrating when you see how well they do in triple-A when they get sent back down, and then they get back up, and they're, you know, four innings, four runs, uh, two <laughs> Obviously. Walks. You know, the, it's frustrating. The talent it, competition it, is slightly different. No, there's no doubt. But you, you also see some guys go up. I mean, it's the same with hitter. I mean, I think Ref Snyder, unfortunately, kind of got exposed for that too. I mean, he was a guy that really always hit in AAA. I think this year was probably his worst year ever in the minors. But, I mean, do I fault him? No, I love him. <laughs> well, it's funny though. Him? Isn't it funny though? Because the guys who are like extra talented, like Aaron Judge or Clint Frazier, will come up and actually start playing better once they get to the major leagues than right. they did in AAA, which makes no sense to me, but it happens all the time. No, it does. I mean, Gary Sanchez did the same thing. Look at the power numbers compared Aaron Judge with the power numbers. You see a lot of guys come up from the minors and they start figuring more things out when they get to the majors. I mean, we've had this discussion and a bit of a, I don't know if it was an argument, but it was, you know, talking about that there's more guys in the major leagues that are around the strike zone. So as a batter, you're seeing better pitches. I mean, granted, you're seeing a lot more. <laughs> right. Harder pitches, but you're seeing a lot more strikes as well. So if you can hit a fastball in the strike zone um, in AAA, you could probably do it in the majors as well. 
So in that theory, would it be easier for me to make contact against a AAA pitcher than it would against a major league pitcher? See, that's a good question. That, that, that's something we, I feel like we would really need to test out. But maybe the major leagues, if you can hit the fastball. The question is, I'm just not sure you can hit the fastball. I, well, I, I could always hit the fastball in, in high school. I, just, I was always fooled on the change-ups and the curveballs. Yeah, but the high school and the, the the high school fastball was 88, 87, maybe. And now you're looking at everybody in the major leagues is throwing high 90s. So yeah, my high different. school was not that good. I don't I, I don't even think the best kid was throwing 88 miles an hour. Okay, so yeah, so your so your your fastball in high school was an El Duque Ethos. Uh, yeah, I'd say I'd say like most of the people were throwing like 83 to 85. Okay, yeah. So if that's a change up. <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah, Severino can't throw a pitch that slow. No, he doesn't even know how to do it. Uh, Clint Frazier scratch from Wednesday's game, right, uh, tightness in his right oblique, which is the same injury that Hicks had oblique injuries scare the crap out of me, especially when you're a guy who swings as violent as he does and goes, you know, just, just balls out on everything you do like Clint Frazier. Um, that's, that's definitely something that can, uh, that, that is worrisome. I mean, if you're looking at it, obviously you use that oblique quite a bit, especially when you're swinging and this dude is, uh, is swinging pretty aggressively and pretty violently when he does swing. So, um, that's definitely something that's not looking good right now. I mean, he's been struggling too. He's definitely, if you're looking at his numbers from the beginning of when he got called up to where he is now, he's definitely, I don't know if it's the league catching up to him or you know, maybe this injury has something to do with it, but, um, it's, uh, it's definitely worrisome for sure. And we need these guys to get healthy again. Uh, Hicks needs to get back so that, you know, if, if uh, this does linger and Frazier does need to go on the DL, at least we're, we have some reinforcements. And you'll also remember that in September last year, Judge went down with an oblique issue. Yes, he did. And, he and was it was about a year. month. It was about a month after he was in the big league. Same with Frazier. Frazier has been in the big leagues for about a month. Gets the oblique injury. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they're sleeping weird on the planes. They're not used to all that plane travel. You know, and it's funny talking about how we were, you know, talking about how the depth of the rotation was something like, oh, we have six guys. So what are we going to do with all these starting pitchers? Well, look at one of our biggest assets now uh, that, or that has been all year long in the major leagues and in AAA with the outfield. And you're seeing a free, uh, Clint Frazier down. Dustin Fowler is gone now. You're seeing Aaron Hicks coming back. Now we're looking thin in the outfield. And so the, the, the bottom line is you can never have enough of these guys because injuries are going to happen, especially later in the season you're gonna see more guys drop and you need the backups and uh so i don't know hopefully it's just not a long thing and he can take a couple days off and, and rest it and get it back yeah we're gonna get a story at some point this season about how the yankees basically went down to like their 35th to 40th man on the roster to get through this season yeah definitely and people are gonna be playing out of position at some point too and i mean you know, there's been talk about, uh, you know, Anduar coming up uh, as, as a DH with Holiday struggling and now on the DL. I think we're going to start seeing some creativity and then and, and I think we're going to see even more of that once the rosters expand. I think there's going to be a lot of guys that are call, getting that call up. They're going to be used more often than, you know, than, ha- you know, in years past. A couple more stats that sort of just stand out to me on the offensive side. And the Yankees did nothing on Tuesday. Garrett Cooper was the only offense. Donaldson was the only offense for the Blue Jays. He smacked two home runs. But uh, Todd Frazier, since he's been traded to the Yankees, is hitting 207. He's got the two home runs and five RBIs, but no other extra base hits. I feel like he goes up to the plate and doesn't have really much of, a, much of an approach. It's funny because I think he was batting 207 too when he came to the Yankees. He's it's, a 207 hitter. He's a 207 hitter, yeah. Uh, this is uh, this is this is a problem. I mean, this is a guy that was supposed to be able to figure it out, or just you know maybe he needed a, a change of scenery to get it back together. Um, 
you know, he's just, he's not producing the power numbers. And I feel like we're getting back into Chris Carter territory because this was exactly the problem. We can live with him in the low batting average and the strikeouts. But if the, if, if the power is there, if he's hitting the ball out of the ballpark, if he's driving in runs occasionally and, and being that run producer, then you can live with the other things. And now he's not doing that too. So uh, it's a problem. It's, it's an absolute problem. And especially when you got a, a young kid like Anduar, who are people are excited about and who's, who's hitting the ball. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to see because we all know Todd Frazier is a rental. Uh, Frazier has been Chris Carter at the plate, but he actually does play a very good defensive. He does. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. So I like, I see no way that the Yankees would go to somebody else at third base simply because it's funny. Isn't it funny how, when it was Headley at third base and Carter at first base, uh, they both sucked. The Yankees solved one problem and Headley went over to first base and is actually producing, but now third base still sucks. So they, they just can't get both corners at the same time, at least producing mildly. Yeah, it's <laughs> the corners have been a black hole this year. And the only answer apparently is more Chase Headley. Just move him around. Dude, it's been like 350, on the month. 350 since going over to first base. Uh, he's, maybe, a, he's a machine. Maybe he was just mistaken I mean, it was a form of mistaken identity he's never been a third baseman he was a he's first baseman in a third baseman's body he's just yeah. wearing the wrong glove and on the wrong side maybe he's confused he doesn't have to worry about throwing across the diamond anymore oh and he's been going to the wrong side of the plate i mean everything he's good at everything on the right side he's good at uh, batting uh, as a lefty he's good and they're on the right side and first base on the right side maybe he just doesn't know how to do anything on the left side of the diamond as a third baseman, his name was Headley, and he had uh, cable, and his hair was down. And as a first baseman, his hey. na- his nickname is Head, and he's got a nice slick back hair, and he's got direct TV. Unbelievable! It's a it's a, it's a truly amazing transformation. And dare I say, is Chase Headley sneaking up into the team MVP talks? Oh, shut up! But you know who's coming <laughs> back? I don't know if you saw this. Uh, uh, Brian Hoke tweeted out today that Aaron Hicks is going to be reactivated this weekend. And Starling Castro and Greg Bird are both beginning rehabs, but Greg Bird is actually ahead of Starling Castro. Ooh, drama, drama, drama. Yeah, I saw that they were taking batting practice. And again, I'm not believing anything about Greg Bird until I actually see him making contact. Uh, And I hope to be very excited about him because potentially, theoretically, this is a giant bat waiting in the wings uh, coming to the Yankees and, and playing first. So let me ask you that question. Todd, Todd Frazier still, still struggling. Greg Bird comes back, starts hitting. Does Headley go back to third base? Does he platoon? It's a great question. A lot of things coming up. If Holiday is is still injured or not hitting, I mean, one of those guys will obviously fill in in, in DH and they'll just rotate. It's going to be a big rotation is what it's going to be. And it's not even like you can do the lefty-ready platoon at first base with Headley and Bird because they're both left-handed hitters, essentially. Yeah, no, because Chase Headley does not hit right. Does right. not hit right-handed very well. He's he should literally should be done. Put it down. Stop doing it. Just focus on being left-handed hitter. That's We're it. getting way ahead of ourselves, assuming that Greg Bird is actually going <clears> to <throat> come back and start producing. But if he did, I think what they would do is they they would DH some guys to see where Holiday is because we haven't really heard anything about Holiday. It seems like it's going to be more than a ten-day thing, yeah. and I think they would end up platooning Bird, Headley, and Frazier across the two positions. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what makes sense, especially um, depending on who's pitching. You're right. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. And like I, I think a, a lot of it does depend on on Holiday coming back and if he is, you know, a, a shell of himself. Yeah. 
another stat um, from from the series so far. Aaron Judge struck out twice on Tuesday, both looking, which is annoying. His 25th straight game with a strikeout. And it's the longest streak in the majors since our old friend Chris Carter back in 2012 and 2013 of 31 games. I'm just disappointed that we've had two Chris Carter references again in this in the show. It's it's he's like never, we're, we're he's, reverting. He's never leaving this podcast. Uh, it's it's really a shame. The you know when we saw that Aaron Judge last week that that home run there was the laser beam over the right center field wall. You know it looked like he was getting back to that approach where he's going back to the right side, being aggressive with the fastball even earlier in the count. So I mean he claims that he's he's making that mental that mental change and that we're you know we're we're going back to where he was earlier in the season um, with the approach and that approach was pretty obvious I mean it was it was taking the pitches uh, that were outside the strike zone and pretty simple here not swinging at them going the other way and and finding that easy power to right field and and just you know he was missing the ball and still hitting it out of the ballpark I mean that was the guy we need back it was um. Yeah, like that home run he hit on Sunday in Cleveland, that looked like a single up the middle, and it somehow went over the center field wall. It's amazing. When he goes to the opposite field, how much more dangerous of a hitter he is. Uh, Just think back to the home run derby, not to bring up the home run derby. I know it's a sore subject with some people, but he hit half of his home runs to right field. So it's not like there's any park in the majors that can contain him from foul line to foul line. But I'm seeing him go up to the plate, and he takes a fastball down the middle on strike one. It's right. like you're getting a fastball down the middle. You're Aaron Judge. You need to hit that 500 feet. I don't care about working the count. You're up there to do damage. Well, and early in the season even, you're, you're looking at when he would even go down to a, a, an 0-2 count, he would work it back to a 3-2 count like all, quite frequently. I mean, he would always work that count. And it's because he was relying on his vision to see that outside pitch because it was given to him, a, you know, just just peppered that outside corner of of uh, breaking pitches, and he just wasn't swinging at it. So the problem now is that even when he's getting in the hole, he's not able to recognize that pitch. He's either swinging at it and you know getting out, or just missing it and just not taking the the effective swings where he was before. He's hitting the balls to the to the right side, and he doesn't need to be perfect when he's making contact to the right side. Good things happen because he hits the ball so damn hard. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things that I just I, the one thing I want to see out of him is being more aggressive. And he talked about his mentality, as you said. I don't know if that's part of his mentality, but you strike out. I mean, he strikes out swinging, he strikes out looking. It's 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 a lot of strikeouts for Judge. We knew that was going to be a thing, but when he's no longer hitting, when he's now hitting one fifty, it's it's becoming a real issue. Yeah, there's no doubt. We need him back. I mean, he's a he's obviously a, a very big linchpin to this offense, and to, I think to the the team, you know, looking forward to this season. I mean, he's got to get it get it back to where he was to because um, everybody else around him in the lineup is is affected by the way he swings the bat, and and unfortunately, chicken and the egg, he's affected by the rest of those guys who are not in the lineup or struggling, and so on and so on and so on. Moving on to Wednesday's game, full disclosure, guys, Scott and I recorded the first half of this podcast before Wednesday's game. We were going to get on and record after, and of course, there's some Wi-Fi issues, and it was a late game to boot. Uh, Funny thing, of course, this always happens to us, Scott. We bash Todd Frazier. We talk about his 207 batting average in the first part of this podcast. What does he do? He goes out, he hits a home run, he gets a huge double that scores a couple runs and, and adds another hit, just for good measure. Yeah, I mean, he was only a triple away from the cycle. So, of course, he, he knew that we were talking shit about him. His ears were ringing. It's fine. It worked. Look, sometimes when it works, it works, and that's a good thing. So we're just going to continue the, uh, the shit-talking of these guys until they all start hitting. So no problems. 
<laughs> the uh, it was a weird game because on the one hand the offense scored eleven runs, beat up on the Toronto bullpen. You had Frazier with the with the big night. You had Cooper with the big night. Home runs from Coop. Gary Sanchez. Home runs from Gary Sanchez and Didi Didi, who was batting cleanup, which is just hilarious and awesome at the same time. So that's great. And then on the other hand, you had Tanaka, who went back out and regressed again. Five walks. Five freaking walks. Just throw strikes, Tanaka. It's it's five walks in four innings. I mean, it sounds worse when you start when you put the innings in front of it too. I mean, this is a guy that had zero control, and what, I mean, one of his strengths, even one of his strengths, is throwing the ball over the plate. Even when he's getting hit, it's at least balls over the plate. He floats it over the plate. He throws it too much over the plate sometimes. But no, this is a. Uh, he looked off. Didn't nothing felt right. It's it's like. You know, sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. You just have no idea at this point what's coming up with him when he throws. Yeah, he looked totally like he's, he had such a blank look on his face, too. That's that the game. problem. When he's bad, he has that blank look. He just, it's like the intensity isn't there, but all his good starts, I feel like he's like super intense. It looks like he's executing and finishing pitches. It's just he, the body language when on his bad starts is very obvious he seems like a, a, he's very momentum driven this year if his starts are going well he has a good start and then as soon as something starts to go bad he just loses it and he can't battle his way through the game and five oh. walks in four innings is unacceptable another runner reach base uh which i thought this was funny on catcher's interference on sanchez just add another add more salt to the wounds that is gary sanchez behind the plate uh, Tanaka did give up a home run. Can't get through a start without giving up a home run. 28th of the season to Bautista. Um, the bullpen saved his ass. The offense saved his ass. Were you one of the guys, were you one of the people that was duped into thinking he had turned a corner and that the Yankees were going to be not only acquiring Sonny Gray and Jaime Garcia at the trade deadline, but they'd be acquiring Tanaka as well? Oh, yeah, I've been thinking he turned a corner for like two months. <laughs> I mean, Shame every single you. time he goes out, every time he goes out and, and puts together a really good start, I'm like, oh, okay, here it is. Here's the beginning of, of that, the, the run that we've all been waiting for. Here's the beginning of that run where he makes all of this money and says, okay, the first half, don't worry about that. This is where I make all that money. This is where I make that huge run into the postseason, then opt out and get a giant contract. It's not happening. It's not happening. He's not opting out. He's 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 staying right here, and it, you know if he's not the same Tanaka, if he's a different Tanaka, uh, and he's this guy that we've seen all year long, then we're in for a long freaking haul with this dude. So I don't know. I, I don't even know if it's capable of it. I think his head is so far up his uh, his own ass at this point, and he has no idea where to turn to you know to get the confidence or or to execute pitches. Or I don't even know what he's thinking on the mound anymore. It seems like every single time it's something different. Dude, his, his head is so far up his own ass, it's all the way back in Japan. Yeah, it's bad. It's not a good thing. It's not a good I don't thing know, to be all the way around the planet. I don't know what's next for, for Tanaka as far as next year. I can't really worry about that at this point. But as far as this season goes, I think we fans just need to start treating him like a back end of the rotation guy because that's what he's been this season. He's been a number five starter. And if we stop fooling ourselves into thinking that maybe Tanaka can be the number one or the number two guy that we've seen for the last three years and just say, yeah, he's our number five starter. He might go out there and pitch six strong innings or he might go out there and not get through the fifth inning. That's just what a number well, five starter is, and that's what he has been this season. 
unfortunately there's there's multiple of those guys yeah, on gotta, the, when you're when you're not talking about Sonny Gray who, who we just acquired and and Luis Severino who obviously is the the clear number one at this point but you, I mean you can't do that because expectations are already set in all of our minds for Masahiro for Masa Tanaka Masa Tanaka for Masa some stupid ass nickname too he's the, he's so the Masa we, of his own domain we already have expectations set. You can't get rid of those anymore. The contract is there. We know who he is. We know who he's supposed to be. We know who he needs to be. So that's that ship has sailed. We have these expectations. And unless he delivers to a number one status, an ace, quote, ace status, he's going to disappoint all of us. Uh, hey, hell, I would take a number three status at this point from Tanaka. Uh, I am pumped for Sonny Gray's start on, on Thursday today as you guys are listening to this. Coming up later in this episode, we talked to Joe Stiglish of NBCSportsCalifornia.com. And uh, he had a lot of great things to say about Sonny Gray. We tried to get him on the podcast when the Yankees traded for him. It just didn't work out. But I think it actually uh, was good that we've seen one start of Sonny Gray's. So, so I'm definitely excited for his second start. Also upcoming, um, the Yankees play a huge series this weekend against Boston. Boston is on freaking fire right now. Um, yeah, they can't lose. Yeah, since you've moved to Boston, I don't think they've lost a game. Uh, eight in a row. No, that's not true. That's not true. I'm still, I still have a winning record. Do <laughs> uh, you, you mean the Red Sox have lost more games than, than they've won? No, the, the Yankees have won more games. The The win-loss rock record between the Yankees Got and the it. Red Sox, since I've been here, is still in the Yankees' favor. Well, it's tilting in the wrong direction right now. but It's getting close. <laughs> uh, between now and the first weekend of September, the Yankees and Red Sox play nine times, and they're separated by yeah. four games in the standings. So if the Yankees are, have any thoughts about winning the division, they're going to have to win the vast majority of those nine games. And if they don't, they're not going to win the division. And and that's you know I think we we both had kind of predicted this uh, this this Boston uh, pull away at some point that was going to happen. I mean they were they're just they're they're the team that's to me clearly more talented uh, and and more ready for for that stretch run at this point. And I, you know we both expected that to happen. So I think the Yankees just need to keep their head above water and and really shoot. I mean yeah, shoot for the division, no doubt about it. Go after these these games. Um, but it's becoming clear that, that Boston is really hitting their stride and the Yankees just need to make damn sure they, they're, they're nabbing one of those wild card spots because they're still built for a postseason. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter. They're still ready for that. Yeah. And you get into that one game playoff, obviously anything can happen. And then they've got a, a, a nasty bullpen that you think could win in a short series. So you're yeah, absolutely. Right. But the division is obviously still the goal. Uh, all right, guys, all season long, we got, we have been telling you about the Bronx Brewery's Bronx Banner Ale. It is one of my new favorite beers. It's the perfect beer for, for the summer. It's light and refreshing. They call it the Golden Easy Ale. It's also perfect for baseball games, and it's available at Yankee Stadium in over six sections around the field. You can also check them out in their South Bronx-based tasting room and at a number of bars around Yankee Stadium. If you're pre-gaming or post-gaming a Yankees game, Definitely order a Bronx Banner Ale. It's kind of become uh, their Yankees beer, um, and I think um, it's a great name. Obviously, Banner. A lot of banners up in uh, up, uh, up twenty seven. Looking looking for a twenty eighth banner. There's no doubt about it. And usually, those things are very hard to get. <laughs> There's no <laughs> doubt about it. We're seeing that this year. So the Bronx Banner Ale is not very hard to get. Go pick one up. Definitely drink it. Uh, there's also some some cool things that the Bronx Brewery is doing outside of just the beer. They are uh, working with the New York Restoration Project. 
It's uh, every single case that is sold, 5% is going, is being donated to the National Restoration Project, which is a local nonprofit focused on making the South Bronx greener and more sustainable. So you're drinking a good beer and helping the New York community. It's always good to help the community while you can get your drink on. And it's also always good to support a local brewery in the Bronx. So if you guys want to find out where you can buy some, go to thebronxbrewery.com slash find and select Bronx Banner in the drop down and then enter your zip code. Again, that's thebronxbrewery.com slash find Bronx Banner, enter your zip code. Joining us on the podcast now is Joe Stiglitch from NBCSportsCalifornia.com, and he also hosts hosts a podcast called the A's Insider Podcast. Joe, what's up? Not much, guys. How you doing? Pretty good. Um, so pretty busy out there for you in California. I know we tried to get you on last week when the trade went down, but it actually works out because we, we've seen Sonny Gray pitch once in a Yankee uniform. Uh, so we'll get to... Uh, We've already seen it with our own eyes. Now we can hear from the source on on all about Sonny Gray. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, it was pretty busy last week, so I appreciate the flexibility. Uh, so what was the reaction from the Oakland fans when Sonny Gray got traded? The reaction was, and, and you kind of hear this every July when the A's aren't, aren't in the race and they start dealing away some big-name veterans, people are just like, they kind of throw the, you know, it's kind of like, oh, here we go again. You know, the same storyline, the A's aren't going to, Aren't going to uh, aren't going to be able to keep their their big names. When are they going to start re-signing guys? So I think there's partly that reaction. But you know, Sonny had been in trade rumors really going back two years now. So I think I think by the time this July rolled around, people were maybe a little more accepting of the fact that he might be gone. Um, and but I think that the main reaction, to be honest with you, when they saw what the return was from the Yankees, because two of the three prospects they got are out for the season. That's all everybody saw, and the immediate reaction was, you know what, the, the A's did not get enough for Sonny Gray. And I think part of that goes back to a few years ago, the aftershock of the Josh Donaldson trade. Josh was a real popular player, obviously a very impact player, who had two, who also had multiple years of team control left, just like Sonny. Um, there's a broad feeling that maybe the A's didn't get enough of a package for Donaldson. So uh, when it comes down to it, I think, I think people this time around are like, man, they gave away a guy like Sonny Gray. Do they get enough for him? I think there's a question in everybody's mind right now. The A's like what they got, but I think there's a question in fans' mind right now based on the injury status of, of uh, Dustin Fowler and Caprillion, too. So it's funny. I think this is a good transition into Billy Bean and kind of the thought process and how fans are thinking about Billy. I mean, obviously, he's accoladed for the whole money ball. He's, he's got national recognition for a lot of that stuff as well. I'm curious how the fans of Oakland are, are feeling towards Billy Bean as a general manager managing the Oakland A's within the last – I don't know, five, six years as, I mean, obviously you, you bring up the Donaldson trade. Um, that one seemed to be, you know, you can't tell until it's finished and you see what the, uh, what the results were on the field. And it, it's extremely lopsided. This guy um, now trading for a couple guys that were injured while they're top prospects, uh, they're injured when you're right. getting them. So I'm curious as to what's the, what's the feeling surrounding Billy Bean these days in Oakland? Well, I think, to be honest with you, I think there's increasing a little bit of impatience going on, and it's kind of been, I think fans have been doing a slow burn for a while here since the, I mean, it really hasn't been that long since they've been in the postseason. I mean, they're in the playoffs from 2012 to 2014, but since then it's been, you know, they're working on their third straight last place finish here, and, you know, the trades the past couple of years have been much like the Sunny trade. We've seen, you know, guys like Scott Casimir, Ben Zobrist, um, Tyler Clipper, and last year it was Rich Hill and Josh Reddick. You know, all the kind of fan favorite type players are, are are being shipped out, and they're mainly coming. They're mainly, you know, in return, they're getting some young anonymous prospects. They're rebuilding type trades, the kind of trades that 
that selling teams do. And after a while, fans just get impatient. You know, I think I think fans here are just ready for a new ballpark. They're ready for this team to start start spending some money and start increasing payroll. And the A's say they will increase payroll when they get a new ballpark. They're saying they're going to announce a site in Oakland to build sometime in the calendar year. So I think I think the patience is waning a little bit for Billy Bean in his front office. But you can also understand a lot of this falls on the ownership too. The owners, in a way, tell the baseball ops, you know what, you got to keep the payroll at a certain point right now. We got to keep costs down right now because we're not bringing in revenue. So. You know, it depends on, on how you look at it. You can look at it and say the A's haven't, the baseball ops department hasn't always made, swung the best trades. They haven't made the best moves. Or you can say, you know, the front office has its hands tied because they're working with a limited payroll right now. So, I mean, I think the blame is probably, probably equally shared justifiably between the front office and, and the ownership for the past few years, maybe. I also think back to him trading away Cespedes for Lester, which at the time you were thinking, right. okay, you're adding Lester to that rotation. And I think obviously they had Sonny Gray and correct me if I'm wrong, they had Samarja too at that point, right? You thought that they was going to be, yeah. you yeah. thought that'd be a, a great playoff rotation, but what he didn't realize, or well, I'm sure he realized, but what he didn't account for was that taking your cleanup hitter out of the lineup really put a hole in that order. So is it no longer in Billy Bean we trust? Well, you know what? It depends on what segment of the fans. There's a lot of fans that still trust the A's, still trust that this front office is somehow working and doing the best with what they can work with. And there are some who just think, who you know, who are getting impatient. And they say, you know, it's time to start making the playoffs again. So interesting, you bring up that Lester trade. If you want to make an A's fans' blood boil, you bring up the Donaldson trade, or you bring up the Cespedes trade, because those <laughs> two really still strike a nerve with this um, with the fan base. Now, I will say about the Cespedes trade, I gave it a thumbs up when it happened. And a lot of people kind of lump that trade in with all the other trades. And they go, there was another big-name guy we gave away, and it blew up in our face. But, I mean, that was they got back John Lester. They got back pretty right. much the best pitcher who was available on the trade market that year. And they needed him. You know, a lot of people don't remember. Their rotation at the time of that trade in 2014 was really shaky. You had Jason Hamill, who had also come over in the Samarja trade, wasn't pitching well. Jesse Chavez looked like he was running on fumes. This pitching staff was in trouble. Um, in hindsight, you definitely look back and say, you know what, they underestimated what the absence of Cespedes was going to mean. But I think a lot of people did, too. I didn't see the offensive collapse coming like it did. And on that one, I give them credit for going for it because that was an un like trade. They went for it. That was a win-now move, and it just blew up on them, you know. So people that year were kind of mad at Billy for trading Addison Russell and trading away their top prospect. And then they turned around they got mad at him for making the opposite kind of trade, you know, and bringing in a guy like John Lester and, um, both moves just did not work out, but kind of for different reasons. There are different motivations behind both trades. So the trade that we'll have to wait on to see who who won. I think fans love talking about who won trade or who was, uh, and they, everybody jumps into right. conclusions very quickly. So I think with this Sunny Gray trade and the Yankees trade, we're gonna it definitely is we have to let it marinate for a little bit, especially on the A side because you know the guys that you got definitely have some some very good potential. But talking about Sunny Gray. We're curious about, you know, the, the, the defense did not show up for him for the Yankees on his first start, unfortunately, because I thought he pitched pretty well. Um, but talking about Sonny Gray as, as a big game pitcher, because in New York, obviously, it's, it's all about winning. And we're curious to see if this is a guy that can step into that big moment and, and take the ball and want the ball and then deliver. So can you talk about that? I know he's had some big starts in, in the playoffs, but Sonny Gray is a big game pitcher. Yeah, he has had some big starts, and he had those starts kind of early in his career. It's been a couple years now since he's really had a – had a you know a big time high profile start like that just because his team hasn't been very good. So, um, so there's a guy who's you look at his track record. He's done pretty well in the big games. Um, you know, in 2013, the first year he came up, um, he drew the start in game two against Verlander. That was a game game two of the ALDS. 
um, at the Coliseum. The A's won that one one zero, and he pitched really well. Stood up to Verlander pretty good. Um, came back and pitched Game Five, and maybe didn't quite do quite as well against Verlander, but still didn't let things completely collapse either. And for a young guy just in his first big league season, I think people were impressed just how he kind of handled himself on the big stage. You know, they came back in 2014, his first full year, and we're talking about that Cespedes trade in the second half, and the A's are really in a tailspin. Looked like they might go from being the best team in the majors to, to maybe missing out on the wild card. It came down to game 162, and Sonny went into um, – Rangers ballpark at the time in Arlington and threw a shutout in game 162, and, and the A's needed that to clinch a wild-card spot. So, you, you know, um, those two years he came up big when the team needed him most. And obviously the A's just haven't since 2015. They haven't had a whole lot of big games like that. And he's had some injury issues. But uh, when it comes to the big stages and the big games that he's pitched, for the most part you got to say he's risen to the occasion. 2015 was his best season so far. He finished third in the Cy Young voting. And then he kind of had a rocky 2016. I know there was some injury issues like you just mentioned. Yeah. Other than the injuries, do you, do you just equate it to injuries, or was there something else that you saw that didn't allow him to get back to that Cy Young-type pitcher? He clearly was not himself last year, um, and I think, it was a, I think it puzzled him a little bit. It puzzled the coaching staff because I don't think anybody really, really saw that coming, um, most of all Sonny, and for the whole season – uh, he was on the DL twice for, for extended periods, but when he was healthy and pitching, um, he was constantly kind of searching for answers. And that was clear in talking to him in his post-game interviews. He was searching for answers, too. Now, fast forward to uh, the, the A's Fan Fest before this season, and Sonny kind of opened up about his injuries. And he he blames a lot of last year's struggles mainly on his physical condition, saying he didn't feel good all year. And he thinks his mechanics kind of, kind of uh, got thrown off based on him being injured. That's a common thing with pitchers. So... I know as he was coming back last year trying to work back from his second injury, which was a forearm strain towards the end of the year, he was putting in a lot of time just on his mechanics too. And coming into this year, he said he not only felt healthy, but he felt like his mechanics were a little – he said he was just more compact. He just felt better about his mechanics. So uh, I think last year was a combination of health and a combination of the mechanics getting away from him. One thing you saw last year, which, which you didn't see prior, was – He'd get ahead of guys in counts, and he just was not able to put them away. He'd bounce his slider, you know, near near home plate. He'd throw wild pitches, and he'd let hitters catch up in the count again. He just couldn't put guys away. He just did not have his command last year all around. And whether or not, you know, it was all about the injuries, you know, if you take him at his word, he says it was all a physical issue. But this year, um, he had the last strain early this year and was on the disabled list. When he came back from that and he was 100%, he looked more like the Sunny in 2015. So you thinking, I mean, talking to, to Sonny in the first half and then the doctors as well and the trainers, I mean, people like to throw that the injury-prone label around, especially for pitchers. I mean, do you see that as him? Because when you're looking at, I mean, just looking at the, the actual injuries in the book, I mean, they seem like they're relatively minor injuries, uh, nagging things, uh, you know, things that may take some time to get over. I mean, do you see him as a guy, you know, looking at his mechanics, looking at all the things that he does as injury-prone? I mean, I think, I think people that comes from people who just say he's an undersized guy and the track record for undersized major league starting pitchers isn't great and they seem to be injury prone. I mean, the track record is what it is. His first couple of years, he was a workhorse and he was durable and he was completely fine. And, and last year he broke down a couple of times. In the beginning of this year, you know, he had the lat strain. Um, all the injuries didn't seem like they were so much related. So, um, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if I would say I don't know if I'd say he's injury prone, but I mean, you know, it depends on it depends on who you talk to and how people feel about it. He is an undersized guy, and people look at that and say that maybe in the long term um, he's not going to hold up. So, 
you know, we'll see. He's been when he's been healthy this year. He's looked really good, and for the most part, um, he has been healthy this year. But it's a little bit of a question mark moving forward, no doubt about it. I'm sure the Yankees had to weigh that a little bit before um, they decided to pull the trigger on this trade. Well, that's a good thing because usually the Yankees get pitchers when they're 37, not 27, and they break down a lot faster. So having a guy that might not hold up deep into his uh, mid-30s or something like that, at least we got him in his prime. But one thing I noticed... Yeah, one thing I noticed about his start last week was that he had four four to five pitches going, and it was awesome to see. Talk about his evolution as a pitcher from when he came up as a rookie until now. Yeah, I think it has been an evolution a little bit. I think when he came up, he was a fastball and just a fastball and curveball guy, kind of more of a 12 to 6 curve, too, and those were his two pitches. And really since then, you know, he's developed. He throws the two-seamer a little bit more. He's got the changeup going. You know, he kind of manipulates the four-seamer a little bit and, and throws a bit of a cutter. And um, he's just kind of a uh, kind of a – he's just pretty nifty when it comes to, like, making things up on the fly, too. That's when Stephen Vogt – and the A's had Stephen Vogt, and Stephen was the catcher who's caught Sonny in the major leagues more than anybody. Stephen would just say, you know what, this guy can literally make up pitches during the course of a game. And a lot of times Stephen says, I didn't know it was going to be coming. That made him difficult to catch sometimes because – Sonny's got a way of just being able to tweak a pitch here or there, whether it's his fastball to get it to cut a little bit more or take some speed off the fastball. He's just kind of a, um, like I said, a nifty guy when it comes to, to doing something like that. You know, he's able, to, he's able to just kind of tweak things a little bit and really manipulate things in the course of a game. And I haven't heard that said about a lot of other pitchers I covered with the A's. So um, he's still a fastball guy, but he throws a slider a little bit more. And he can, he can equally throw the, the slider and the curveball equal effectiveness in games. You know, the curveball's obviously got less velocity on it. The slider's got a little little harder, a little more bite to it. Um, but it's all about having the command and, and being able to get those ground balls. But he really does have four or five pitches he can go to at any time. It's funny because I think when the when the trade was rumored to happen and then when it did happen, there were some old quotes from David Ortiz that kind of resurfaced during that talking about how he looked at Sonny Gray and, you know, he's just a just like a kid that doesn't look like he can do much and then took him called for, him the Apple IT guy. Yeah, the Apple IT guy. That's right. it. <laughs> and then took him for a ride with all the different types of pitches. Um, so he was it seemed like Ortiz was. Uh, very impressed and and just it wasn't it wasn't expected either so um i think he comes out yeah, and sneaks up yeah. on people and too I, I think i think it's a combination you look at the size and he, he still got the baby face going i mean with, yeah. with the a's his last days with the a's he was trying to grow the beard and <laughs> he'll tell you he wasn't have too much success doing it and he's just got that baby face look to him still you know just a polite you know humble southern kind of guy and um, i think that all plays into it too and he's not the biggest guy obviously he's under six foot so you look at him on the mound and maybe he's not the most intimidating presence especially early in his career. But I remember when Ortiz was saying that, that caught a lot of buzz, you know, a hitter that stature having those good things to say about Sonny. It seems like the whole Oakland clubhouse was was all about some Sonny Gray. They they really, I guess he meshed well in that clubhouse. Uh, there was a story about Oakland watching Sonny's first start as a Yankee in their clubhouse. So can you talk to us a bit about what he is or, you know, kind of his, his stature in the clubhouse and with the rest of the guys? Yeah, he was. He had a presence in there, and he's not the most vocal guy, and I don't think he's a big rah-rah guy. I mean, who knows what happens behind clubhouse doors when, when all of us in the media aren't allowed in, but he, he was a pretty quiet guy. I think he led by example. And, um, you know, the thing about him was, like I said, he kind of became an ace-type figure, that staff, at a very young age and a very early point in his career. I mean, you could say by the end of 2013, that was his first half season, him and Bartolo Colon were the two co-aces of that staff. And it just continued. By the time he came back in 2014, you felt like you were talking to a guy who was an established big league or front of the rotation type guy, and you kind of forgot, you know, this is this guy's first, this is his first full season still. So 
he always just seemed like he was a little more advanced um, than his age and his development would suggest. I believe when the A's drafted him out of Vanderbilt, I believe they sent him straight to Double A out of college. You know, and that's pretty rare. So he was always on the fast track to get to the major leagues. And you know, this clubhouse has always been a guy with young pitching. I mean, they usually have they have a veteran around. They'll have a Rich Hill or a Scott Casimir or a Bartolo, who young guys can look to. But I think after a pretty short time, guys were looking to Sonny Gray too, just because of the respect he commanded, because of the body work he had so early, so early on in his career. All right, final question from me, and be honest on this one: How okay. often do you have nightmares about the Derek Jeter flip play? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That play is—I mean, I grew up—I grew up rooting for the A's. I grew up rooting for the Giants too. I grew up in the Bay Area, I, so I. That play, I can just look back at that play and just kind of marvel at, at what a legendary, amazing play it was. Because right when it happened, you knew that it was going to go down to the books as one of the all-time great postseason plays. So, I mean, at that time, you know, that time I was actually working for, I had my first newspaper job. I had covered some A's games a little bit at that point. So I was honestly able to watch it kind of as a reporter, not so much as a diehard fan living and dying with every pitch. So I was just kind of enjoying the game for what it was and I mean, that, that play's going to go down in infamy in A's history, you know, for that. And the Jer- Jeremy Giambi no-slide. And it was just kind of, you know, just kind of an example of, of the A's in the postseason, early 2000s. Whatever could go wrong would go wrong. And, I mean, that play helps cement Jeter's legacy, obviously. Are Oakland fans right, still the- saying he's safe? What's that? I said, are Oakland fans still saying Giambi was safe? They're still mad at him for not sliding, to be honest. Okay. That's the main yeah. thing I think people think of when it comes to that play. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you on that one. I don't know how he didn't slide. Was it right. uh, uh, Terrence Long hit it? I was trying to think who was behind him telling him. I guess everyone was just shocked as much as ever, as we all were that Jeter actually flipped that ball. So It was such an unconventional play for, yeah. for you know the shortstop to be there in that position, the first place to make that kind of – I mean, you just never see guys even in that kind of position. It was like a quarterback kind of freelancing mm-hmm. a play like on a two-point conversion or something. You know what I mean? It was just kind of crazy, and just the athleticism and instincts took over. So just a crazy, unusual play, and – I mean, gosh, one of the all-time greats, you know. Even as an A's fan, I think you've got to appreciate the genius of the play, even if it if it rips your heart out a little bit. Right. All right, Joe, well, we appreciate you doing this. And again, you can catch him on the A's Insider Podcast if you want to hear what's going on with some of the Yankee prospects that were traded over to Oakland. I know everyone who's a Yankees fan is really rooting for Dustin Fowler after that gruesome injury in his first Major League game. Yeah, you know what? I got to say hi to him. I uh, just met him, met him briefly. He seems like a really good guy. I'll just tell people, if you want to listen to the podcast, I do a new one every week. You just go to NBCSportsCalifornia.com. Um, you can check it out there. Um, and you can also uh, subscribe to it on iTunes. Just do a search for the AIDS Insider Podcast with Joe Stiglitz and, um, and just follow it. And it's, um, I get some, some uh, opposing players and, and front office and coaches on there, too. So I think it's got some appeal for people, and hopefully people will check it out. All right, good stuff. We appreciate it, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Hey, thanks for having me on. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Make sure you find us on iTunes and subscribe so you can get all new episodes directly onto your phone. If you do like the show, we'd love for you to take a minute and give us a five-star rating and review in iTunes. It really helps us out and allows us to create more shows. We're on Twitter at Bronx Pinstripes and the same on Facebook. You can always find us there talking Yankee baseball. Thanks again, guys, for your support. Really appreciate it. And go Yankees.